This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth. Sometimes you want to tell people that they're at the start of their career. You never know when good fortune is going to strike you. But what you've got to do is you've got to be in the game all the time to be there to receive the good fortune when it can hit. From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Welcome, everyone, to the Legends of Sales podcast. My name is Justin Schreiber, and I'm the CMO of People AI. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Jeremy Duggan. This is going to be a great session, and Jeremy has a wonderful story. Jeremy hails back to PTC and since then has had a great run at companies such as BMC. Most recently, he's the chief revenue officer at White Hat. But before we get into the conversation, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Justin. Nice to be here. Now, we are actually talking across the pond right now. I'm in San Francisco and you're over in the UK. You got to love the wonders of modern technology. I love it. I've never been through such a complex process as the one that you set up here to make sure we're recording this about 14 in 14 different ways, aren't we? Astonishing stuff. This is this is what you have to go through with COVID. We also like to daze and confuse our guests because we find that's how we get the most candid information out of them. Yeah. So strap yourself in for this one. Yeah, well, it's Friday afternoon, so I've already had three bottles of beer. So, you know, this should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I wanted to start off, first of all, talking a little bit about a subject which I know is near and dear to you, and that subject is football. You and football go way back. In fact, I understand you grew up in Newcastle. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So I understand you had your big shot at the young age of 11 years old to make the squad, Newcastle United. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what happened there and how everything turned out. Well, thanks for setting me up uh, right at the start with a, a story of abject <laughs> failure in, in in my life. You know, I was, <clears throat> the, you know, back in those days, it was, um, it was, it wasn't like like nowadays with the sports teams where they've got you know thousands of scouts looking for young players and stuff like that. What happened in the old days was that you know every every area you know picked the best player and and they went for the for the trials and I was the I was the you know picked from my area to go for, for this trial. And obviously, you know, then I was absolutely 100% convinced that I was going to, you know, have a, a starring career as as Newcastle's main striker. And so, uh, you know, when I took three buses to get to the to the trial and uh, game started, um, I was uh, I was running back to defend a cross that came in in the first minute, put my leg out to try and clear the ball and smashed it into my own goal. So minute less than one minute into my into the the the, the trial of my life to play for Newcastle United, I scored a, a goal against my own team, um, which was which led me to have probably the the greatest feeling of loneliness 
that I can remember in uh, in my life. I was blowing this huge <laughs> moment that I had, and it was yeah, it was pretty pretty disastrous stuff. That was when I realized that a career in sales leadership was was probably the right thing for me. Maybe the coaches though were saying, "Wow, that kid can score. That's impressive." Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's what they were thinking, Justin. Uh, although I like I like your optimism. Jeremy, since we're since we're being upfront and candid here, I need to tell you that I had a very similar experience, not with football, but with basketball. High school, my sophomore year, the coach puts me into the big game. I got the ball. I froze. I didn't know what to do. Very similar situation. I shot at the nearest basket, which happened to be my own team's basket. And the rest is history. So I think <laughs> that's both of even us worse, face... That's even worse. At least mine well, was a well, mistake. You, you, you kind of liberally <laughs> threw it in your own net. Rubbing my nose in it now, Jeremy. I was trying to give you an easy out there. I know. But I, I think I've that been... we both have those failures to thank for the fact that we are not professional athletes today. And, and perhaps for the world, that's that's all for the better. Yeah. I, I, I bit the hand that fed me there. I, under, I understand that. But, but you know, the one thing, the one thing I will say about about that experience. And I don't know if it was the same for you, but it it did give me an early insight into the perils of almost being so scared of failing that you don't actually try to win. You know, I'd, I'd never scored an own goal in my life until that point. And I think, you know, it was an early example for me of how I'd built up this 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 important event in my life to such an extent that I didn't play my normal game. And I see that all the time now in, you know, in, in sales and business where, you know, people, you know, when they go into really big high pressure meetings, they become a lesser version of their normal self because they're so, they're so fearful of doing something wrong that they don't actually go out, you know, with, with every, you know, sinew in their body to, to do, you know, something right, to do, to do brilliant things. And it's just a good, it was a good example for me in the early age about, about how you need, you know, mental agility and mental strength and, and tactics that you can use to make sure that you can survive and thrive in these high pressure situations. So, you know, I, I did, did actually even think at the time I, I, I was aware of that. So it was, it was a good lesson for me. My experience was formative as well. As soon as I shot that ball, I knew that I had made a major mistake. The coach did not hesitate to let me know in no uncertain terms from the sidelines he immediately pulled me out of the game. I sat on the bench, not only for the rest of that game, but for the rest of four or five games to follow. To your point, though, Jeremy, as I was sitting on that bench, completely mortified about what I had done, I, I felt like, wow, it can't get much worse than this. And as bad as I felt about myself, I said, you know what? I can get through this and, and life isn't going to get much worse than this. I go back to that experience and I say, if I could get through something as humiliating as that, I can get through anything. In a strange way, that unleashed me and, and helped me have the confidence to know that no matter how bad it got, I was going to be able to push through it. I think that's a, that's a good point. And I'd even extend on it by saying, when I was, when I was going home after that game, I'd, I'd, it wasn't just that I felt that way, but because I did, but it was almost like, you know, why did I allow my mind to put me in a position where I, I delivered less than I normally would? And it, I almost kind of, you know, right there and then realized that actually I made such a, a big mistake because mentally I was too scared. So actually, what's the point in, in getting yourself into that position where you're too scared? You know, you have to, you have to prepare your mind that, you know, visualize success, not, you know, not focus on what could go wrong, but focus on what could go right. 
And you see that in, in, you know, I do a lot of reading about sports stars now. And, you know, my problem in that game was I was thinking about what could go wrong. Whereas all the sports stars now and, and what I'm like in businesses, before any, any big moment or big game or big meeting or big presentation, I'm always thinking about what, what can go brilliantly and what can go well and how it's going to be fantastic and how I'm going to, you know, do a great job and all those kind of things. And that gets you in the frame of mind to deliver in a positive way, as opposed to what I did on that day, which was play with fear and end up, you know, fear actually, you know, being the victor. So it, that, that's how it helped me as well as, as knowing that I could get through anything. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. And clearly these kinds of experiences as a young person formed you. You were in Newcastle. A lot of us folks here on this side of the pond don't know a lot about Newcastle. Tell us a little bit about what that town is like and what it was like growing up there. Well, it was a typical northern UK working class town. You know, it was um, when I was growing up, there was lots of, you know, heavy industry like coal mining and shipbuilding. It wasn't a particularly, you know, affluent area. It was a, it was a tough part of the UK. But, you know, the, the people there were, you know, great working class people. They were they were friendly. They cared about each other. People didn't have a huge amount of money, but there was a great society. Everybody shared things and stuff like that. They, they're passionate about things that they love, like like their football. You know, it's, it's famous as an area which is really passionate about sports. And it's still a, a place really close to my heart, even though... You know, when you compare it to, to London, which is obviously the capital of the UK, you couldn't really think of two different places to grow up in versus, you know, the capital versus somewhere like Newcastle. But, you know, all in all, it was it was pretty tough. You know, there's lots of street kids there. Um, but, it had, you know, I enjoyed it. I had a great upbringing. It toughened me up. It's fascinating also how those early days manifest themselves later on in your career. We're going to get into a little bit about some of the lessons that you learned and how those influenced your sales philosophy. Before we go there, though, tell us a little bit about how you spent your time. Football, obviously, one thing that you did a lot of. What else did you do and, and how did that have an impact on who you became? You know, I played lots of football. I just remember, you know, in the summer holidays, you'd get up in the morning, have your breakfast and then go out and play football all day and then go home and stuff like that. But you know, aside from that, I was I was really you know an avid reader. That was kind of my escapism. You know, I, I used to I used to love reading. I, I could read you know three or four books in a week, and you know it was it was kind of my you know really fueled my imagination. Checking out all these different books that any book I could get my hands on, really, whether it would be about it'd be about you know world history or or the you know the planet or you know fiction. You know, I got into some of the classics. You know, I think my favorite book was Wuthering Heights by M Emily Bronte. I just I used to read anything, and it, if I think about as I got older how that impacted me. You know, I think there's there's a real logic that goes through through a book, you know, that the, the book has to make sense and, and flow and things like that. And then when I started to to study English and 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 history, which I did as, as a degree, you know, what I found was was interesting and how it applied to my work today is that, you know, when you if you have to read like Wuthering Heights, I had to study that for for, for my degree. And it's a really complex, detailed, lengthy book. And yet you have to answer a question on it in an, in an exam in, you know, four sides of A4. And so what, what you have to do, therefore, is you have to pick out all the pertinent bits of a really, really long book and make a constructive argument in, in four pages. And what that, you know, effectively means you have to do is you have to simplify something that's really complex. And that's really been a theme I've developed throughout my whole career, because when you get into leadership, you know, the, the one thing that you learn is that complexity doesn't scale. Right. If you're trying to lead 10, 20, 30, 40, 200, 1,000, you know, salespeople, marketing people, anybody in an organization, if your you know, plan, your go-to-market plan is overly complex, 
not everybody's going to get it and certainly not everyone's going to get it quite quickly. So it's really difficult to scale something. So you, you've got to take a very complex, you know, go to market plan and you've got to make it digestible for everybody in your team so they can learn and they can develop and use that. And so I think, you know, at the time I even remember thinking to myself, well, how's writing an essay on Wuthering Heights going to, going to help me in my career? And it wasn't until later on that I realized that what it allowed me to do was start we start to look at something that was quite lengthy and complex and distill it in, into a simplified form. And that's actually, a, you know, something that is vital in, in you know, any person who wants to, to be a senior leader in an organization. Jeremy, I, too, was an English major. I completely agree with what you're saying. You've got to take a four or five hundred page book and distill it down into a four page paper. The synthesis that happens there is very similar to the kind of synthesis that you do as a business person. Obviously, being an English major isn't the only way that you can learn that skill. But my experience is the best leaders are those that are able to take complexity and simplify it and then communicate it in a way where audiences can really get it. Yeah, no doubt. Because otherwise, ultimately, what you want, your, your strategy is you need people to go away and execute it. And you need, to be able to ex you need it to be executed at scale. And if people can't truly understand, you know, why they're doing something, what the benefit is, what's in it for them, how to do it, you know, because it's too complicated, then it then it won't get done effectively. And that that can that can, you know, stunt the growth of your organization, you know, before it's even started. I'll also give you a major shout out. I am a major fan of the Bronte sisters as well. I'm a little more partial to Charlotte. Jane Eyre is my all time favorite, but I got to give you props for Wuthering Heights as well. A great tale. What's interesting about that one, Heathcliff also came from a really tough background, uh, I believe Liv Liverpool, Northern yeah. England. So uh, I don't know, perhaps there was a bit of an affinity there between you and what you experienced and, and what that character experienced. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because he's, he's, he's a really kind of quite a violent and vengeful guy. And so I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't put myself in, in, in that bracket, but you, you're right. The, the kind of, you know, the downtrodden nature and how he had to fight against that adversity was, was something that ran, ran through the book. The reason, the reason I thought it was fascinating was that, that Emily Bronte was a young girl living in, in the Yorkshire Moors in, you know, the, the 19th century. And she wrote that book when she was, I think, late teens, early twenties, and she never wrote another book. And to have a book of, of that depth and imagination and passion from somebody who probably only met maybe 40 people in, in, in her life, it was, it was a pretty astonishing piece of work. But, you know, I think you and me could probably talk about our love of literature for a long time, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> that we'll lose about 99.3% of the audience on this, Justin. So maybe, maybe we should. All right, we we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dive in then. So you, uh, you ended up going to the university. Yeah. You majored in history and English. Was that a foregone conclusion that you were going to go to uni and you kind of had that all planned out or, or how did all that transpire? Uh, no, not really, because it wasn't traditional in my family or, or even in, in the northeast of England that you'd go to university. But I was lucky back then that that you could get student grants to go to university. So I didn't have to pay anything. Whereas now, you know, in, in, in the UK, if you're going to go to university, you're going to leave with, you know, $100,000 of debt. And, and I know it's at least that in the U.S., um, but 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 back in my day, you could get a you know, if you got the right grades, which luckily I did, then the government would would give you a grant to go there. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion, but I knew that I had to go if I wanted to you know break the mold of you know working class kids doing kind of blue collar jobs 
because you, you couldn't get the best jobs in, you know, in London in any of the industries, whether it be advertising or media or sales or finance. You needed to have a degree back then. And I always knew that, that, that that's one of what I wanted to do something like that. And I actually turned down a job as a mechanic when I was 18 because I wanted to go and, and, and see if I could, you know, make it in, in one of those professions. And so you had to have a degree. So, so that's why I went to, to do it. And, and in truth, I didn't enjoy my time at university. I, I, you know, I said earlier on, I, I recognised afterwards some of the skills I got through studying English and history. But at the time, I thought it was pretty much a waste of time. I played a lot of football, played the first team at university, but I kind of felt it was like three years wasted when I would much rather have gone into a, one of those professions and learned on the job how to be great instead of just going away and studying English and history for three years and then going into it. I felt like I'd kind of wasted three years a little bit. The moment of truth then comes, you complete your degree, you decide sales is the career for me. How did you actually find out about sales? I believe PTC was the first company that you joined as a salesperson. How did you land in PTC? Yeah, so so I think, so, so what I did was I I, um, I, I started off in a, a couple of different jobs where, where I found that it was, that there wasn't as much accountability as, as I wanted and people tended to get on because they were they were very good politically and I was never really either good at it or interested in being good at, at being political. I just wanted to go into a, an environment where, you know, there was <clears throat> the end of any quarter or year, there'd be my name and there'd be a number next to it and it'd either be great and I would profit from that or it wouldn't be great and I'd have to take the consequences, but I was happy to live live with that. And so um, a friend of mine got into PTC and he told me about this company that was growing rapidly, had a really great sales process, but you had to be prepared to be a bit of a street fighter because it was a, it was a pretty tough environment, you know, very um, hire and fire environment. And, um, but if you did well, then your age would never be a limitation to how quickly and, and far you could go. But if you didn't, then, you know, you'd probably get in a taxi home after three to six months. And I wasn't scared of that at the time. In fact, it was exactly what I was looking for. So I applied and got in. And when you landed there, was it immediately clear that this was your profession and you were going to be great at it? Um, <clears throat> not really, no, because um, I don't think I don't think when you start anything, you, you're great at it. You know, I think I, I think you're trying to figure out if you're going to be good at it. I, I knew that I would like the kind of environment of accountability, but I didn't know if I was going to be good at it. I mean, I remember my first day I had a, a boss and he plonked down this big telephone book. It is, I sound like my a granddad now, don't I? He plonked a big telephone directory in front of me and said, right, these, these are the two postcodes you've got, you know, go call people. And I remember thinking, I don't even know what, what, what we do. What, what, what do you want me to say to people? And, and that was it. You had to just get on the phone and you had to cold call people and, and, you know, set your own meetings. And it wasn't sophisticated like it is now where everybody's, you know, we've got SDRs and BDRs and great lead gen engines and, and, you know, lots of different ways to drive pipeline nowadays. You know, back then it was, it was call these people and try and get a meeting with them. And when you do get a demo, and then, and then, you know, here's a sales process to try and sell something. Process to try and sell something. So it, I didn't, um, no, I didn't realize I was going to be good at it. But, but then what happened was, as I started to get more and more meetings, because I was pretty determined on pipeline generating. You know, as I started to get more and more meetings with with this, you know, this pretty effective sales process that PTC had had, I started to realize that I was that I was good at building champions of people. I didn't call them champions at the time, but I realized I was good at building champions. I had a, an affinity to understand what people were trying to, what their personal wins were in, you know, buying a technology like this and making sure that the value 
that, that, that we were providing as a, as a company fitted into what they were trying to do personally and also what the company was trying to do. And I kind of think I did that quite naturally at first, um, but then realized later on, you know, how it fitted into a sales process. You shared a great story with me when we were catching up last week about an interesting poll that your peers put together on the first day when you guys were all there at PTC. You want to talk a little bit about that poll and, and some of the voting that happened? Well, I think I was just, I just, I remember I was in an early team meeting and, um, and they, they used to, it was kind of like, it was almost like a, sometimes a bit of a badge of honor at PTC that, that, you know, people got fired all the time and stuff like that. So they used to do every now and then they'd have little kind of votes over who'd be the most likely to get fired. And, and, you know, I, I, I was the convincing winner <laughs> in my early stages at PTC so much so that I, I think on one of them, I think I voted for myself. Um, and, and so I wasn't even giving myself a shot. Um, and so, but, but then, you know, you know, those things, it's, it's not, it's not nice. That it wasn't a great part of, of that culture. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I looked at that and, and it made me even more determined and, and they, you know, they, they were right. You know, there was a lot of people at the company then, very clever people. A lot of them had degrees in, in engineering, which is, which was the product area that, that, that we sold. And I was an English and history graduate at 23 years old who'd never sold before. So it was it was entirely reasonable that I was the most likely person not not to make it, but then that what, what I realised with them was that I would have to double down and work harder than anybody else and learn more than anybody else. And I remember a story about um, there was a there was a really nice sunny day one day, and I used to every Monday I used to pipeline generate because I used to think, well, that's a full day of doing it. And what I would do is I'd lock myself in an office and I'd I'd cold call all day. You know, I wouldn't put the phone down on the receiver. I would <clears throat> hang up with my finger and just dial all, all day. And then it got to about six o'clock and, and one of my colleagues came in and said, listen, Jeremy, we're going to go down the pub. And I hadn't booked any meetings that day. So I said, look, I'm, I'm, I've got to get a meeting today. And he said, hey, Jeremy, you've been at it all day, mate. Just come on, come down the pub, give yourself a break. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not. And I stayed and I'll never forget that, that, that um, about quarter past seven that night, I got through to a guy called Amir Majarad who was the IT director of a company called Wilsh Technologies. And I booked a meeting with him and I was like so happy. So I put the phone, I went to the pub. Anyway, um, long story short, that was my first ever deal at PTC. And without it, I would have been fired because that was that was my end of my six month probation period. You had to get a deal in by then. It was, I, I got the deal. It was a big deal as well for the time. And I look back sometimes in my career and I think to myself, I wonder what would have happened if I'd gone to the pub that night, you know, at, at, at six, six o'clock instead of, instead of sticking it out. And this is what some, sometimes what I tell people at the, at the start of their career is you never know, you never know when you can, when, when the good fortune is going to strike you. But what you've got to do is you've got to be in the game all the time to be, to be there to receive the good fortune, good fortune when, when it can hit. And, you know, sometimes a lot of people, they kind of, you know, they, they can kind of end up, you know, giving up a little bit just at the moment when, when you know, the breakthrough was going to happen. And, and that's certainly a real pointed moment in my career when it would have been really easy for me to go to the pub. I'd done my time. I'd, I'd done, you know, eight hours of cold calling. I could have gone to the pub and I didn't. I wanted to get my one meeting. You know, if, if I, if I wonder if I hadn't got that, 
what direction you know my uh, my life would have taken. In fact, I, I met my wife Mel at PTC after that six month period when I got when I got fired. Who's obviously now I've got two beautiful kids, Tommy and Sophia. So so you can even say that p- pipeline generating gives you children. And wives, that's what I say to people, right? <laughs> pipeline generating, it gives you everything in life as a salesperson. So don't don't skimp on the pipeline generating people. That's the message there. Don't forget the pipeline generation. That story speaks volumes about what it takes to be successful. My favorite part, though, about the story, the way that you told it, you remembered the name of the person yeah. that you connected with. Yeah. I think that's telling as well. Yeah. So sales is definitely a series of stepping stones that we walk through. First, you've got to establish yourself as a successful sales rep. Then you've got to become a manager. For you, what was that transition like? Well, it, was, um, it, it wasn't easy at first, but with hindsight, it was actually the making of me because what happened was I, I did a, a great first year as a rep and then somebody was promoted to, to the job that I thought I was going to get who didn't do as much revenue as me. So I took the, the manager that hired me out for lunch and said, listen, you know, I've got to tell you, you, know, you put me through a, a, a difficult period in doubting myself and, and you know, working, working as hard as I could to, to, to come through and be successful. And, you know, one of the upsides of PTC was, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, you get promoted if you're the best guy and I'm the best guy. So, you, you know, why did, why did you not promote me? And this guy was a really, you know, smart leader. And, and, and what he said to me was, listen, Jeremy, the reason I haven't done that is because you've got a natural affinity to sell. You're naturally good at champion building. You're naturally good at, at you know, matching the value that we have to, to what companies are looking for. But you're not going to manage five Jeremy Duggins, i.e. five people who have that natural ability. And what you have to do as a leader is you have to take people of all different types of, of you know, ability and quality and all that kind of stuff and, you know, train and develop them to become great, right? Because otherwise you can only ever manage a two or three man team. If you, how are you going to manage a hundred man team unless you have a hundred, you know, people who are all naturally good at things? So I thought, I went home that night and I thought to myself, you know, he's right. And so it was at that moment that I started really looking at the science of selling. Because what, what I'd found out was I was kind of, I was kind of a bit of an artist at selling, but you can't scale art, but you can scale science. And so the first thing I did was he'd said that I was good at champion building. So I sat down and, and, and wrote a presentation on why am I good at champion building, right? And I realized it was about four things. I was good at, good at identifying potential champions. I was good at building the champions to, to become champions. And I was good at testing them to see if the, the build phase had worked. And then I was good at using them. So, and to this day that that presentations had been done in, in many different forms and it's been made a lot better than, than my one from 25 years ago. But the core tenets of it, those four core tenets are still how, how we train people in, in champion building uh, to this day. And, you know, from then I, I then, you, you know, realized that that allowed me to scale the art of, of champion building to a whole load of people because I could give them something tangible. So then I started looking at all areas of that. You know, why, why would two people who were both good at pipeline generating, why would one of them be great and the other one wouldn't be? Why would two people who were good at getting to executives, why would one of them be successful and one wouldn't be? And I couldn't work that out. So what I started to do was look at the underlying trends that all great people did and all people who weren't quite hitting the mark didn't do. So I could build what, what, what I now call the, the, the leading indicators of success. So I could, I could say, look, if you do these things on a weekly, monthly, quarterly and annual basis, the statistics say that you will knock it out the park. And once you figure out what they are and you have the data to, to underpin it, 
then two things happen. First thing is it's easy to get people to want to learn those things because you're giving people a winning lottery numbers. If I came to you, Justin, and said, hey, Justin, go put these six numbers down on a lottery ticket tonight. They're guaranteed to win. You'd go and do it, right, if I had good evidence behind it. So, so what I was actually trying to build was the winning lottery ticket for people. So that's the, the first thing is it gets people to, to buy into it. And the second thing is once you know it, you can, you can track yourself and your team against those things on a weekly basis to make sure you're doing them so you can course correct if, if you're not. And then you also build, you know, tools around those things to make sure not only you're doing these specific activities, you're also doing them brilliantly. So you're training people on, you know, the skill, like obviously pipeline generating is, is obviously one of them, you know, how much pipeline generating you're doing. But then you can also say, well, what skill level do you have? How are you executing the new business meetings you do? Are you really setting yourself up for success to the highest percentage, you know, rate that, that you can in those new business meetings versus just spending all that time getting the meetings and then not executing them properly. So you build skills and development and tools around these leading indicators. So effectively what you've then got is a great game plan where you say, look, if we do these things, we know that statistically you'll be successful. And if we do these things better than everybody, because we've trained ourselves and we're more skilled than anybody else, then, you know, the world's your oyster. That's really been the bedrock of, you know, any success I've had. I feel like we're getting a masterclass in selling right now. That topic that you started to touch upon, which is the champion and how to develop the champion is mission critical to any successful sales motion. Could you spend just a few more minutes developing each of those four points that you talked about? Yeah, I mean, look, the first part is identifying a champion, right? And the, a lot of salespeople will use the word champion when they're talking about somebody in the customer will say, oh, my champion says this and my champion says that. And we can get quite lazy using the word champion. So when, I, when anyone says that to me, I'll, I'll stop them immediately and say, hey, stop. Why are they a champion? Right? Don't call somebody a champion if they're not. And you'll be amazed at how many times salespeople will then stop and say, okay, actually, they're not my champion. And the reason that's important to me, even though it sounds little, is that if you, if you say you've got a champion, you talk like you've got a champion, then what you're not doing is looking for a champion and, and, and other champions. So the, the identification, you know, there's a, a quite a common phrase, which is a champion has power and influence in an organization. And, and that's really what it is. Or another way of looking at it is somebody who will be able to sell in your absence. If you don't have a champion in a deal, you're pretty much going to lose. And actually the flip side is if you do, you're pretty much going to win. So it becomes a really crucial fundamental part of the sales process. And you, you, you don't want to be lazy in your definition of champion. So the first part is that, you know, identifying them. The second part is building a champion. And, you know, Champions, they're looking at you to see if you're a champion as well. So it's really important in sales that, that you're a peer of, of the person you're building as a champion. And that means, that, you know, coming across as, as professional, it comes across as being trustworthy and honorable. It involves making sure that you have a clear understanding of what your champion's trying to achieve and you, you can show your champion how you can help, you know, he or she achieve that. And then when they start seeing in you that you're someone who's credible, who's got integrity and honesty, who understands what they're trying to do and is working for them, isn't just a cheap sales guy trying to make a quick buck, you know, champions don't like people like that, then that's how you help build them. And then when you think you've identified a great champion and built them, then you want to, you know, test them, you know, when you've got a great, strong champion, and if you want to kind of get a, a short meeting with the the economic buyer, the person who's going to sign the checks just to make sure everything's on track. You know, it's a good test for a champion that they'll they'll take you there because they're, 
they, they want to take you there because they think you're credible and you're going to reflect well on them and the work they've done and those kind of things. And at the end of it, you know, when you're talking about, you know, using your champion, what using is probably the wrong word. What I mean is you're working in partnership with your champion to A, make sure that the, you, you become a good partner and supplier, but B, to make sure that you're there after the sale as well. You know, the, the days of people, you know, selling things and then, and then, you know, leaving and moving on to something else are long gone. Thankfully, they're long gone. You know, building building a great business now is about getting great customers and then making sure you deliver for those customers. Because if you deliver and you put the customer first, then you're going to be able to scale a company beautifully. And so, you, you know, making sure that you're working with your champion to make sure you deliver what you said that you were going to deliver. You over deliver, you, you provide an exceptional service against what you said you would. And that's how relationships build from from there. So that's how I'd, that, that's a short overview I'd give of a pretty complex um, subject. On the topic of sales philosophy, I've heard you use a few phrases that I think embody the philosophy that you've that's made you so successful. I wanted to throw out just two phrases and have you elaborate on those. The first, I've heard you say lions want to run with lions. Lions want to run with lions. What do you mean by that? I just simply mean that people like to to surround themselves with others who share the same values. So I've spent most of my career at companies that have been scaling quite rapidly. And it's not easy to do that. And you need people who are, you know, smart and resilient and good fun, actually, you know, because when you're doing difficult things, you, you know, you've got, you've got to enjoy the journey along the way, um, who, who are loyal and who will, you know, it's nice to, you, you're going to get into sticky situations when you're trying to do something extraordinary, which building a a small company into a big company is extraordinary. That's why it's rare. And when you do things like that, you're going to have massive challenges that, that a lot of people don't face in life. And when you have those challenges, you can't be alone. You know, it's, 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 it's a lonely place, you know, building these great companies. And you want to look around you and see that, you know, you're working with people who've got your back when things don't go well and, and you've got their back. More importantly, as a, as a leader, people have to know that as a leader that you, they can trust you and you're going to be there in the, in the bad times you know, as well as good, because you think about it from a leadership perspective, nobody really needs a leader when things are going well, right? You, you need a leader when things aren't going well, somebody who, who can help you and, and, and motivate you and stick by you in those times. And that's what I mean, you know, people, you can have different personality types in, in these companies, of course you can, but the fundamental values that you have that, that make these, the, these companies great, you have to have that, those shared across the team. And, and that's what I, what I say is, you know, people who have those values gravitate to work with other people who have those values. Hence, lions, one of them were lions. Second phrase I've heard you use, Jeremy, is the pain of being great. Tell me what you mean by that. Sometimes, you know, I, I kind of talk a little bit too much sometimes, and, and but then sometimes I say something that's that's reasonably interesting. Not as often as I'd like, but there you go. And and um, I, I said I remember talking to to, to the team at App Dynamics once, and and everybody was going through a, a difficult time because you, because that's what happens. In uh, like I said, in these big in these companies, you're trying to make great. And I said, look, whatever route you take in life, you're going to get pain, some form of pain from it. And you've got the, you've got the path. You know, you, these two paths you can take. You can take a path towards being great, or you can take a path towards just having a, a normal life. And, and if you ha take the path to having a, a normal life, you're going to have the pain of, of not being great, of not doing something amazing, not doing something that, that you look back on your life and go, wow, I was, 
I did something truly outstanding there and that not many people could have done, right? And if you if you take the, the path to the normal life, you're going to have the pain of not achieving that. And then if you take the path to, towards being great, you're going to have the pain that goes with being great, which is you've got to work hard and you've got, you're, you're going to have more ups, but you're also going to have more downs. You're going to have more challenges. You're going to have you're just going to have difficult moments that you don't have on the other path because if being great was easy, everybody would be great. And then it wouldn't be great because everybody would be doing it. So therefore it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be great. And so on that path to greatness, you've got lots of things that are going to challenge you versus taking a path for anything else in life. So you have to be ready to take that pain, but, but also knowing that actually if you take the other road, there's pain there as well. So, so you, know, I'd, you know, I choose to take the pain of trying to, to do something unique and special and and live with that rather than you know the the pain of of you know not trying to do those things i don't know if i said that as clearly as i would have liked but hopefully you got the point crystal clear and great great insights those of us that have traveled the path of sales recognize that to a large extent we are the product of the great people we've had the opportunity to work with i think we can all point to certain individuals and talk about how they've helped to shape us and helped to shape our careers. In your career, who would you point to as individuals that have had a particularly large impact? I think probably two would spring to mind. The first one would be um, Steve McCluskey. I, I mean, I've worked with Steve for probably 15 years now. He always says you get less time for armed robbery um, than, than, than you know, the amount of time we've, we've spent working <laughs> together. Um, but I, I first met him, you know, as a, he was a sales guy and essentially became the, the, the top sales guy in the world and then did the same at Blade Logic. He went into leadership there, you know, was the best leader. We went to BMC. He was the best, you know, second, third line leader at BMC and then Essential, same again. You know, he's really been my closest, you know, companion on on this journey we've done we've been through so many ups and downs together you know i i wouldn't have achieved what i've achieved even close to it without without him you know being alongside me in, in all these fights as a as a confidant and somebody who can you know take the strain you know when when you know i'm tiring a little bit and he's just he's just a you know hard working super smart very honorable loyal guy and, and just a great leader so he'd be one the other one would probably be uh, cedric pesh you know, me and me and Cedric have kind of known of each other. We knew of each other before we actually met. You know, I knew he was, I kind of worked for the same company, but we were both always vying for the top spot, you know, almost competing internally with each other. And then I was fortunate enough to, to work closely with him at first at Blade Logic a little bit, but then at BMC. And, you know, Cedric, he's one of those guys that when I'm kind of in a difficult spot, I'm not sure what to do. Cedric will be my first call. And there's two reasons for that. The one is he's an incredibly intelligent guy both intellectual and, and emotional intelligence and the second thing he's just got this this great honor about him so you, you always know when you go speak to Cedric he's gonna he's gonna have your best interest at heart and really think about a problem you're coming to him with in terms of you know what it means for you and how he would tackle it in your shoes and so I've, I've really valued that professional relationship that turned into a friendship as the same way it did with Steve as well so I think those two guys really I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be any close to, to where I am right now without either of those two guys. You've had a great run running sales organizations. You're now at an organization called White Hat. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit about White Hat. What is the mission and what drew you to the company? It's great, really. Steve McCluskey's the, the CRO 
uh, White Hat, you know, and, and I'm the president of White Hat. And what I loved about White Hat, this, the CEO is a guy called Ewan Blair. And and I met Ewan when I was, uh, after I'd, I'd left AppDynamics and I was talking to a lot of, a lot of you know, pre-IPO companies. So Ewan's, Ewan's a just, just you, you know, an incredibly passionate smart, intelligent, you know, caring guy who, who, you know, when I met him, I realized he had this goal to, to really try and change the world. And it seems like such a lofty goal that so many people have that goal, but they, they haven't really got the, the ability to do that. Whereas, you know, the company that, that I saw you in building was a company that could genuinely leave its mark on the world. And what White Hat effectively does is it's trying to tackle the lack of, of diversity and social mobility in the world. A lot of the social injustice that comes with that. Which, which I experienced when I was a, a young kid in Newcastle. You know, if you look today in, in the UK as an example, and it's the same globally, you know, 60% of people on, on graduate programs went to private school, you know? And, and so if we, want, if we want the world to be a better place, we've got to start giving opportunities to people from all walks of life who have huge potential, but haven't been born into the privileged position of being able to have that potential easily unlocked. And if you just look at university as an example, you know, the cost of going to university makes it massively prohibitive to, you know, somebody who might be hugely, you know, talented and have huge potential, but being, you know, born into a, into a poor area. So what White Hat effectively does is it goes to companies like Google and Facebook and, you know, Visa and Santander, some of the biggest enterprise companies in the world, and basically, you know, gets those organizations to agree to apprenticeship programs. And then we go and source these really high talent, high quality, high potential, diverse apprentices from, you know, less privileged backgrounds and give them opportunities to get into these great companies. And then we give them the training to, to help them become proficient in the area they've chosen, whether it be data or digital marketing or software engineering. And so we're, we're really tackling the lack of diversity that, that companies have right now. And then also giving these apprentices a route to the boardroom as well, because then what we do after the, in the early apprenticeship stages, we then we're introducing programs that get, get people degree level certified as well. So that these great diverse candidates that we put into these organizations can then do on the job training to get degree level proficient as well, which gives them a great route into the boardroom. So this, this is a problem which has come, you know, even more to the fore in the last few months. And companies are really waking up to the fact that diversity is, is something that needs urgently tackling in the world, just from a social justice perspective, and is actually incredibly advantageous to an organization as well. And we're doing our part as a fast growing company in terms of finding these candidates, getting them into companies, training them in those companies and just trying to solve this problem, you know, in, in a meaningful way, which I think could, you know, really, really redefine, you know, the way that the world starts looking at, at these challenges and doing something about it. So I'm, I'm really proud to be part of this company. I, I really hope that what we're doing is, is, is going to make, you know, make the world a better place in, in, in our own way. Jeremy, the art to your story is fascinating. We started today talking about how you were scoring against yourself and ended talking about how you're setting other people up to score in a very meaningful and significant way. A wonderful legacy that you are building and will be able to leave to future generations. Thank you so much for being so open though about your experiences, your successes, and also your failures, and just being so genuine about uh, everything that you've experienced in life. Yeah, no problem. It's, it was my pleasure to talk to you. It's it's, uh, it's great what you all doing to try and, you know, get people to, to pass on, you know, some advice. And if it helps anybody, then that's fantastic. So I was really happy to do it. And thanks for, thanks for hosting it. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. All the best. <laughs>